Thank you, brother. Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 12, is where we're going to find ourselves this morning as we continue to walk through this book of Jeremiah. What a prophet, and what a time in which he had to prophesy, because it was not an easy time. He was, in fact, hated for his message and surrounded by people who really hated the truth. Sort of similar to our day in some ways, which is why this is so applicable to us. This is what it says, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you? As this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I have intended to do to it. And... If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they will say, this is vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. This is the word of God. Thank you for coming. You can be seated. And please bow with me as you're being seated or making your way to your seat. Father, I pray that you would please give us grace Two, hear your word rightly this morning. And for some of us, give us grace to even hear your word, period. Father, I pray that you would please open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Lord, I pray that you would please use this word this morning for those hearing my voice here in this room or on the internet. Lord, I pray that you would please draw sinners to yourself and please build up the saints in the most holy faith once for all, delivered to the saints. And we pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. I remember back in the year 2001, Amy and I were freshly married. I had just started Bible college to prepare to be a missionary. And um, I was just excited. And I was just excited about life and loving Jesus because I'd only been a Christian for about three years. And things were pretty simple. And my faith was pretty simple as well. Well, I started working for a company, uh, a lawn maintenance and landscaping company, but I was in the lawn maintenance division, and I was paired up with a gentleman who's now one of my best friends. His name is Jason Bradfield, but at that time, I didn't know him. I was new. We were just getting to know each other, but we were in the same truck together. So for eight, nine, ten hours a day, we worked together together rode to house to house together, and we got to talk a lot. Thank the Lord, he was a Christian, and a strong Christian, and he actually knew the scriptures better than I did. However, he was still being refined in how 
it's best to share truth with someone who disagrees with you. (laughs) He wasn't always as gracious as he should have been, but he wasn't a jerk either. He had a lot better understanding of the sovereignty of God than I did when it comes to man's salvation. And he was sharing those things with me. And I was a new Christian. I've been raised up kind of in some traditional teachings about God um, and some pretty basic ones. And I knew John 3.16 and I knew the Romans Road and things like that, but I didn't know, you know a whole lot more. So he started challenging me when it comes to how far does God's sovereignty extend? I was totally fine with God being sovereign in how he chooses to do things in the earth and things like that. But when it came to my salvation, I wanted very badly to own that I was the first mover in my salvation, that it was me. I was responsible for saving me because I repented and I believed. Now, is it true that I repented and I believed? 100%. But he was trying to show me from the scriptures that it's actually God who's the first mover. And you repented and you believed because God was working in you to cause that to be so. Well, that made me so angry. I was so proud, and I didn't realize it. It's not that I necessarily wanted credit for my salvation, but something about God being that sovereign over absolutely everything, 100%, for some reason, for some reason, made me angry. And it made Amy angry, because I would come home and I would say, listen to what this guy said. But you know what he did every time we had a disagreement about it? He would say, okay, well then what do you do with this verse? He would show it to me. And I would say, well, I don't know, but it doesn't mean what you say it means. And he would say, okay, well, what do you do with this verse? Well, I don't know about that either, but my pastor says this. And so you must be wrong. Well, then what about this? Well, I don't know about that either, but my grandfather says this is bad. And so it must be bad. And then he said, Cohen, you're preparing to be a missionary, right? I said, yeah. He said, you know that missionary that you always talk about that you love, William Carey, you know, the first Baptist missionary to um, overseas to India? I said, yeah. He said, he believed these things that I'm telling you. Nuh-uh. Surely he didn't. Well, yeah, he did. You know, Adoniram Judson, who you love? and Oh, yeah, he's awesome. He was a rock star as a missionary as well. He believed these truths as well. No, he didn't. Yeah, he did. (laughs) And I couldn't get away from it. And finally, finally, the Lord showed me. He is absolutely 100% sovereign over all things, including the heart of men. And I loved it. It was like I was born again, again. Because I saw so much more of God's glory. And I loved it. But before I loved it, I hated it. I titled the message this morning, God's Most Misunderstood Attribute. God's Most Misunderstood Attribute. You can guess which one it is. You can see from the text already what it is. Now, how does God first show this to Jeremiah? Well, he shows it through having him go somewhere and do something. But I want to focus on, look at this, the first verse of Jeremiah 18. The word that came to Jeremiah from 
the Lord. This is from God. And God means to communicate truth to Jeremiah and to give him truth. And guess what? God communicates and wants to give you truth today too. And like I said earlier, he uses means to do that. And the scripture is the greatest and best means by which he chooses to do that. And the foolishness of preaching is another way he chooses to do that. And so I pray that you will please also bear with the foolishness of this preaching this morning. I pray that God uses it though. However, the word that came to Jeremiah was this, a command, arise and go. Go where? Down to the potter's house. What's going to happen then? And there I will let you hear my word. So Jeremiah goes down not knowing what to expect. He's just told, get up and go. And this is pretty common. It's pretty common because he did that to Abraham. Arise, go to a land I'll show you, period. And he did. He went. Also, when it comes to uh, Philip in the New Testament, arise and go to this place. Okay, I will. And it was there that he encountered the Ethiopian eunuch, but he wasn't told that before he went. Christian, God's not obligated to give you all the details when he tells you to do something. It might just be, initially, arise and go. And that's your part. Just like those of you who are parents, sometimes you tell a child, I need you to do this thing. And you're not obligated to sit them down and tell them, well, it's because of this, because if we don't do this, then this won't happen, and it's because of this, and this won't happen. And I've already told your other siblings to do X, Y, and Z, so I just need you to do this so it'll fit into all the cogs perfectly. You don't have to do that, even with your children. And God's not obligated to tell us all the details either. And so he goes. Verse 3, So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. Still, he hears nothing. He's just standing there waiting for a word from God, and he's just observing. He thought, I'll just wait and observe. Is this man going to tell me something? I don't know. I'm just told to go to the potter's house, and there, there God's going to tell me what he wants me to know. And so he thought, well, while I'm waiting, I'll, I guess I'll observe and watch. And what's he see? And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled on the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. So, you've seen potters work at a wheel, I'm sure. If not in person, you've seen videos, right? You know that that clay turns into whatever the potter wants it to. It's his hand movements that turn it into something. But starting out, the clay was spoiled. You've seen that too. Maybe you've worked with clay. You know, it's not so easy. And it folds over sometimes and breaks. But then other times you're able to make something and it comes out perfectly and you're so proud of it, right? Well, that's what happened in this case. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And so he reworked it into another vessel. Look, as... It seemed good to the potter to do. That vessel turned into exactly what the potter wanted it to turn into. He was the boss over the clay, right? And the clay couldn't at that point say, why'd you make me like this? I don't like being this shape. It was made into what the potter wanted it to be made into. 
Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this encounter. The prophet is here sent to the potter's house, not to preach a sermon as before at the gates of Jerusalem, but to prepare a sermon, or rather to receive it ready prepared. Those who would know God's mind must observe his appointments and attend where they may hear his words. Matthew Henry. Jeremiah had to follow God's command in order to receive God's message. God had a message for him, but Jeremiah had to follow God's command in order to receive God's message. For you and I today, we go to the same place to find both his command and his message. And where is that place? That place is the scriptures, the holy scriptures, the revelation of God. Did you know this, church? Listen, obeying God's will will always take us to God's word. Obeying God's will will always take us to God's word, always. Because it's from God's word that we even get his will. But sometimes there are things that we pray about, Lord, what is your will? And he might impress something upon our hearts. Well, if you want to see that, if that's right or not, if that's from God, you've got to go to his word. The Bible says, test the spirits. Obeying God's will will always take us to God's word. And it's in God's word, God's revelation to man, what do we find there? That we find the history of God's works, we find the character of God's heart, we find the wisdom of God's ways, and we find the glory of God's perfections. We find all of that in the scriptures. So why would we forsake it? Why would we not go to it? Why would we not love it and embrace it, right? This is a question I sometimes have even for myself. And it's so when I get back into it, I'm reminded again, oh gosh, I remember just how much I loved this section or just how much that speaks to me or oh, I'm so thankful for what God said to me. Because we have an enemy that's fighting hard to keep us from going to this book. Do you know why? Because this book contains his demise. These are the weapons we fight spiritual battles with. So it's a good tactic of him to keep us distracted from it or to whisper in our ear, that's false. Don't listen to that. That can't be true. You should doubt that. I would use the same tactics if I was trying to keep someone from a weapon that I knew could kill me. Hey, don't look at it. Look over here. Let's stay far away from that weapon. It's a good tactic. It works. Sometimes it works on you. Well, while Jeremiah was here at the potter's house, Jeremiah was about to get a pre-packaged message about one of God's most misunderstood attributes, and that's the sovereignty of God. Number one point here that we find in verses five and six is God can do whatever he wills. I mean, that's really the main point of verses five and six. That God can do whatever he wills. Look at verses five and six. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. That's the point of going to the potter's house. God's saying, I can do with my people what I want to do. Now, lest any of us think, how dare he? How dare he do what he wants to do? You have to know this also about God. God never does anything wrong. Unlike you. We always, that, that, that's a broad sweeping statement just to show how it happens very often. 
we always do things wrong, though it's not always. We do things wrong very often there. I'll correct myself. Very often. Have you ever gone 24 hours without a prideful, egotistical, selfish, haughty thought even? I haven't. Even on my best day. Even on my best day, I have a selfish thought. Even on my best day, I'm not as generous as I ought to be. Even on my best day, I don't love God as much as I should. Even on my best day. There's a theology out there of perfectionism, believing that you can get so sanctified to a point that you never sin. And one of my pastor's friends was talking to another pastor who holds to this theology. And he told him, he said, I haven't sinned, I think he said something like, in a year. I haven't sinned in a year. And I thought, I'd like to talk to your wife. I'd like to ask her if she agrees with that statement. Because what I've learned about having a wife, especially a godly one, is she can sometimes see me better than I can see me. And if she can see me better than I can see me, what about God? You think he's got a bit more insight into your heart than you or your spouse or someone close to you? I think so. If we take this book seriously. And so what God is saying here is, I can do what I want to do with my people, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. God is sovereign. He's not limited by man. He's never once crossed his arms up in heaven and said, oh golly, I really wanted to do that, but now I can't because Cohen did this, and boy, that just ruins all my plans. Or even someone much more powerful than I. He's never crossed his arms in heaven and said, oh golly, the devil is doing this, so now what am I going to do? Boy, he's really spoiled things down there. I used to think God was like that, though. I used to have, even when I was saved, I was very young in the faith and I had, a, I was un, I had sat under sort of bad theology for a, a lot of my life. And when I say bad, I don't mean heresy, I just don't mean not as, it wasn't as full as it should have been. Full, F-U-L-L. And so I remember when I was working for a Muslim once, one of my first real careers, I was working for a man who was a devout Muslim from Pakistan, like legit Muslim, not, not converted when, you know, not some white guy who converted. I mean, Pakistani Muslim. And I remember hearing about his view of the sovereignty of Allah. They believe God, they believe Allah is sovereign over all things. There was a Catholic girl that was working with me there. And she said, hey, Cohen, did you read that article? Did you hear about that article about that family, a Muslim family, who their daughter was killed in a car accident, and they were interviewed about it, and they said, it's the will of Allah. She said, did you hear that? They believe it was, they believe it was God's will. And our Pakistani Muslim boss said, yes, we do. And I remember, listen to me, this, this is going to sound strange. I remember sort of, I remember envying him for having such a strong belief in God's sovereignty. Because the theology that I was under would have said something like, the devil, that was the devil. The devil did that. 
And God is just as frustrated and sad about it as you are. And I remember once I came to a more full understanding of God's sovereignty, how comforting it was to know, first of all, what the Bible says about God. That yes, things like that do happen. They are God's will. And God means it for good. And I needed that too because it was just two years after that that Amy and I had not only our first miscarriage, but our second miscarriage. And I cried like a baby with each one. I'm talking sloppy crying because I love those babies. Knowing that we had conceived and we were pregnant, I automatically started loving those babies. And we had our first miscarriage and I needed a robust biblical theology to get me through that, to know that Cohen, not only did this not take God by surprise, this was his plan for you. He planned this for you. This is part of his plan. And he means it for your good. And I needed that. Listen to what A.W. Pink has to say about the sovereignty of God. Arthur W. Pink. The sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy, being infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him, so his own word expressly declares, quote, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 He does, according to all his will, in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Daniel 4.36 Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact, as well as in name. That he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things, after the counsel of his own will. Unquote, Arthur W. Pink. God has, for a more simplified definition of the sovereignty of God, you can remember this. God has the right and the power and the wisdom to do whatsoever he pleases. God has the right and the power and the wisdom to do whatsoever he pleases. Say it with me. God has the right and the power and the wisdom to do whatsoever he pleases. That is a simple yet robust definition, and is biblical. Listen to Psalm 135.6 and Psalm 115.5. Look at them on the screen as well. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is our God, and this is what he does. Charles Spurgeon, talking about an attribute that's both loved and hated and misunderstood. There's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Amen. Amen. I know that. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. 
There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon his throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by the worldly, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well whether consulting them in the matter, then, I'm sorry, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. That means loathed or hated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon his throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. Charles Spurgeon. And if, and if you think, oh, that was so good and rich, we, oh, if only we could resurrect that man. <laughs> well, you can resurrect him. You know why? Because he's written dozens and hundreds of books. Read them, and you'll resurrect him. He's got more. That's just so good. So, number one, I said, was that God can do whatever he wills. That's what we find in verses five and six. Number two, when God relents from doing his will. That's what we find in verses 7 through 10. Let's look at those, verses 7 through 10. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up or break down and destroy it, by pluck up he means, you know, take it away. Pluck up, break down, and destroy it. <clears throat> and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I've intended to do. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I've intended to do to it. So yes, God is sovereign over all things 100%, but he also gives us a will to make choices. And he says, if this is declared to them and they turn from their evil, then I won't bring it. And if... I've said, you know what, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to bless all of you. And then they are evil. Then I'm going to turn from that as well. So God gives you a will to make choices that you want to do. Based upon your will. Based upon your nature. He gives you a choice. And he acts according to how you choose as well. Sometimes he relents from doing certain things, like he did to Nineveh when Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Oh, the king says, everyone, sackcloth, ashes, no food, not even for the animals. Perhaps God will relent. And God looked at what they did and he said, I'll relent, I'll relent. And of course, Jonah, being the adult that he is, had a pity party and said, wah, didn't want that, wanted them destroyed, wanted to see some fireworks. Now I'm angry, and I have a right to be angry. 
Jonah. We shake our head at him, but then we have to remember what we're also like sometimes. I want you to pick up on something here. Look at verse 9. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, meaning I'm going to bless it and grow it, look. And if it does evil in my sight, and then he explains what evil is in his sight with the very next portion of that sentence. Not listening to my voice. Do you see that in verse 10? And if it does evil in my sight, let me explain to you what I mean, reader. Not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good. Not heeding God's word, not listening to it, and a listening with the ear of obedience. That's what he means. Do you think he means just physically listening? Do you think he means that? Oh, I, just, I get God's blessing just from listening? Awesome. I'll just play audio Bible all day long. I'll just play it in my sleep. Of course, that's not what he means. He means a listening with intent to obey. So, should the opposite happen? Disobedience. This is where the evil comes in. Disobedience to the word of God. He, he lays it out right here. I'm not creating this. I'm just showing it. This is what God deems as evil. Not listening to his word. But this is when God relents. And he relents. That's good news. He relents from bringing disaster. He relents. And it comes from the fact that we repent. When we repent, he relents. Though God is sovereign, he's making them responsible for their own judgment, of their own deliverance. God's sovereignty coexists with the fact that man has a will, like I said a moment ago. Now, man's will, of course, is bound to his nature, as I said a second ago. Um, you've probably noticed I don't use the term free will. I just use the term will. I don't know if you picked up on that earlier. It's because by definition, theologically, free will means free to do both good and evil. Like totally free to be a, a free agent apart from my nature. But our wills are bound to our natures. That's why God must change our nature in order for us to be saved, because we'll always choose according to our nature. That's why a saved person, I mean, I'm sorry, an unsaved person, even when he or she falls into the consequences of his sin or her sin again and again and again, and we look at them and we say, why do they keep doing that? It's wrecking her life. It's wrecking his life. Why do they keep doing this? I don't get it. It's because they can only choose within their nature. And their nature hasn't been changed. That's why we say, why can't they see the folly, the foolishness of their ways? I don't get it. Why are they doing that? Don't you think about that sometimes? Repeat offenders. Hey, dummy, you keep stealing. <laughs> you get arrested for stealing. <laughs> then you go to jail for stealing. And then you get out. And then you, you steal again. And you get caught and fined or put in jail and then you just keep doing it or inject in there whatever sin you want, right? It's because they're bound to their nature. Until God gives them a new nature, they're going to choose within that. That's why I don't use that phrase, free will, because it, it, it actually means theologically more. 
so when I say will, I mean what you usually mean when you say free will. But just to let you know, free will theologically means you're a free agent who can actually choose, really choose real good. And I don't believe sinful man can ever choose real good like God because of the scriptures. And I'm willing to sit down with you and show you why I believe that. Don't just take my word for it. Please don't ever do that. That would be foolish on your part to just take your pastor's word for it and not do your own homework. Don't do that. Their hearts had not been truly regenerated, Israel's hearts. That's why they kept falling into sin. They kept going back to idols and idols and idols, as we saw in the book of Judges. That's why Paul can say in Romans 9, 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israel are Israel, he's saying. Not all Jews according to the flesh are Jews according to the spirit. They're not all saved. That's his point. Not all Jews who are Jews according to the flesh are Jews according to the spirit. Just because these people were enjoying the blessings of God and had received the law of God doesn't mean that they were a part of the people of God. And just because you attend church and maybe have even joined a church and even call yourself a Christian doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian, does it? The one who loves the Lord, the one who delights to obey his word, the one who loves the brethren and wants to see God's kingdom come, these are the ones who are saved. Let me say that again. The one who loves the Lord, the one who delights to obey his word, the one who loves the brethren and who wants to see the kingdom come, these are the ones who are saved. Take any of those out of the equation, I would doubt your salvation. And I'm not saying you have these imperfections. No one does, especially not this guy up here. Nobody does. But they're there now, and they weren't before. And Cohen didn't create them in Cohen's heart. Because if you want to know Cohen's track record, just look at years 1 through 18, and you'll see Cohen's track record when Cohen's in the driver's seat, when Cohen's operating under his own will. The third point of this sermon, go and declare God's will. The first point to Jeremiah, God can do whatever he wills. Number two, when God relents from doing his will. And now number three, go and declare God's will. Because we see this in verse 11. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. God is pronouncing judgment, but what's with the judgment? Do you see what's mixed with the judgment? He's pronouncing judgment. I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. But what's the very next verse? The very next part, rather. Return from his evil way. Amend your ways. He's still calling them to repent. Do you see that? He's saying it's coming and it's going to be fierce and horrible because that's what he's been explaining in this book. But then he says, come back, turn. You've seen what I just said. I'll relent from the evil. Look how patient he's still being. You would not be this patient with them. Yes, I would, Cohen. I'm a patient person. You don't know yourself then. I thought I was a very patient person until I had children. And I realized, man, I'm selfish. I really, I had a very high view of myself at two times in my life, before I was married, marriage humbled me a little bit, and before I had children, 
That really humbled me a lot. But you guys should have known me back when I was 19. I was so sanctified. I was holy. <laughs> holy. <laughs> and then I grew up in the faith. You know what you realize as you grow up in the faith? God is holy, and I am sinful. That's a good evidence of your growth. Is is God becoming more holy in your eyes, and are you seeing just how sinful you are? I don't mean sinful you are and just like a worm, Cohen, worm, and you beat yourself every morning with whips. I don't mean that. I just mean you see yourself for who you really are, and you know how wonderful he is that he even saved you in the first place. That's what I mean. You become so much more grateful because you see just how bad you really are. Go declare God's will. Then, fourth point of the sermon, not your will but mine be done. Cohen, you quoted it wrong. Jesus said, not my will but thine be done. I know that. I twisted it on purpose. Not your will but mine be done because this is what they're saying to God. Look at verse 12. But they say, this is vain. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his own heart? Now, did they actually say that phrase? Probably not. Because it's very rare that someone would say that. I'm not going to obey that. I'm going to follow the stubbornness of my own heart. No. But you can sum up the response to Jeremiah when he preached this sermon by how they lived. And how they shunned him. And how they said, we don't believe that. We don't believe that. We think it's going to be this way because this is the way we want it to be. That's what it boils down to. That's what it boils down. Listen, anytime you have a thought or a belief that differs from the word of God and you know that's in the word of God and you know it differs from the word of God, you're believing it just because that's the way you want it to be. That's the truth. <laughs> that's just the truth. I want it to be this way instead. Don't like what that says. Would rather do this. So therefore, don't believe that. I will now cut that part out of my Bible. At least without, even if you don't use scissors, you've at least done it emotionally. When it comes to God's sovereignty, I want to end with this. Acts 4, 23 through 28. Acts 4, 23 through 28. You might not like, you might say, I don't like the idea that God is sovereign. I don't like that he ordains things to be the way they are. I don't, I don't like that. That, that, that bothers me. Because that sort of makes me feel like I'm not the boss. And I want to be the boss. You hear me? I don't like the idea of a God being in charge of everything. Well, yeah, that's normal for you to not like that because your heart's wicked and deceitful above all things before God changes it. But God sovereignly ordained all the paths of one man's life. And we love that fact. Look at Acts 23 through 28. This is after Peter and John were arrested. They were arrested for preaching. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. What the chief priests and elders say to them. Hey, if you keep preaching, it's going to get real bad for you. So you better stop. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, <laughs> How'd they start their prayer? 
That's our word. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of their father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers there were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're saying what David said here in the Psalms, this is being fulfilled, God. And you sovereignly ordained that to be. And then look, this is what they keep praying in their prayer. Verse 27, for truly... In this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Every single thing that happened to Jesus ever, and especially at the crucifixion, God planned it. God's sovereignty over Jesus was not only ordained here, it was even pre-recorded. Jesus' life was pre-recorded even. Do you know how many scriptures Jesus fulfilled in his life that were prophesied hundreds of years before it happened? His life was not only ordained by God when he was on planet earth, it was pre-recorded. But we don't call Jesus a robot, not at all. He was the most free agent there's ever been. It was all planned by God. And aren't you thankful for that? Because that means you are saved if you've come to Jesus by faith. Because this punishment that was poured out on Jesus was predestined so that his people would come through repentance and faith to Jesus Christ and receive the payment that satisfies for sins, the only payment that satisfies for sins, and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of God's sovereignty, you're saved. Because of God's sovereignty, you can be saved. Amen? Father, thank you for this wonderful truth. It's a big truth. It's a robust truth. It's a biblical truth. And it is a truth that is so powerful. It carries us our whole life long in your wonderful hands, Lord. I find myself falling back and back and back into your hands again and again and again, knowing that your sovereignty catches me, carries me, protects me, blesses me. Most importantly, through Jesus Christ. We love you. We pray these things in his perfect name. Amen.